0: My name is Mary Berward. I'm forever grateful to all of those involved. His relentless pursuit of justice resulted in the capture of the person that I used to refer to as that man. The man we know is Joseph James D'Angelo. Impact, it doesn't go away. We live with it, and it's always there. When I was 13 years old, I lived with my father. On June 25, 1979, at 4 a.m., Joseph James D'Angelo forced his way into my home, into my life. He raped me. Stole my innocence, my security, and I was taken to the hospital. No 13-year-old should have to find out what a rape kit is.
1: I am Anne-Marie Schubert, and this is Inside the Crime Files. Welcome to Inside the Crime Files with Anne-Marie Schubert podcast. I am Anne-Marie Schubert. This podcast takes listeners inside and behind the scenes of the investigation and the prosecution of some of the most horrific and notorious criminal cases in California history, We also examine unique techniques, innovative ideas, and inspirational stories that come out of these tragic cases. Perhaps there's no better example of that than the case of People versus Joseph D'Angelo, also known as the original Night Stalker, the Visalia Ransacker, the East Area Rapist, and the Golden State Killer. In this episode, we will focus on the survivors of this case and the inspiration they have become to other sexual assault victims. I am honored today to be joined by Chris Pedretti, Gay Hardwick, Bonnie Olson, and Carol Daly. Welcome everybody, thanks for being here. Can each of you, I'll start, if each of you can introduce yourselves and tell us whatever you actually feel comfortable with sharing about your story. So let me start uh, today,
2: let's start with Carol Daly. Well, I became first involved in these cases, uh, working in the sheriff's department, uh, as a detective, joined the department in 1968. And, uh, my first eight years were, uh, I specialized in working crimes against children and, uh, sexual assault cases, uh, about a year before the, uh, East Area rape series. My responding to these cases was sporadic at first because I was working homicide cases, along with uh, responding to some sexual assaults because of a lack of other investigators to um, respond to these cases. Um, So it um, it was several months before the East Area Rape Task Force was formed, and um, at that time, then I was assigned to respond to almost all of the uh, East Area Rape cases.
1: You know, one of the things, Carol, that I remember um, before the case was solved, reading a number of different articles from back in the 70s, and one of them, I remember you being quoted, it probably was the Sacramento Bee or the Union, saying each time a newspaper article came out, it was number seven or number eight or number nine, all the way into the 20s. And I would imagine that as those numbers climbed, the case became not just professional, but almost personal for you.
2: It was. Every time I was called to respond to one of the East Area rape cases, uh, I felt a heaviness and a panic uh, of the whole community, Um, and all of the investigators working these cases were feeling the same thing. It was very difficult to respond to a case and look into the eyes of a victim and not have any answers. It was deeply emotional for me, and yet at the same time, um, maintaining uh, composure and uh, trying to help them uh, through uh, what was happening. Um, I knew at the time that we were doing everything that we could to identify who the East Area Rapist was, uh, but that wasn't really good answers for the community. Uh, they wanted answers, and uh, It was shortly after we knew we had a series going that there were a lot of public forums uh, that were uh, set up to try to answer the questions that community had and try to uh, not only put them uh, at ease as to what we were doing, but to give them information as to how they could protect themselves and their homes.
1: Right, I remember watching some of those town hall videos and the number of people was really astronomical that were showing up to find out what was happening. Why wasn't somebody arrested? But it was um, very telling to see how many people showed up, the the impact it had on our community here in Sacramento. Yes. Um, Bonnie, sorry to cut you off there. Bonnie, how about you?
3: I met Joe D'Angelo as a community college student of 18 with almost no previous experience dating. He was nearly five years older than I was, returning to school after serving in Vietnam and studying for a career in law enforcement. After dating for a year, we both transferred to sex state, and later became engaged slowly as uh, we continued our relationship, I began to see that Joe operated outside the rules. And often he tried to take me with him trying to finally trying to force me to help him cheat on an exam. I finally recognized that I was in an abusive relationship refused to help him on the exam and broke our engagement. Joe responded by appearing about a week later at my home, waking me with a gun pointing at my face and insisting that I go to Reno and marry him that night. My father intervened,
1: got him to leave, and I never heard from Joe again. Must have been awfully scary for you. I remember, Bonnie, in some of our conversations, you mentioned that you had wanted to go to nursing school. And is that, am I right on that one? Actually, I'd wanted to go to medical school. And
3: at as the circumstances in my family, I had to settle for nursing school. Although I was a top student and had several scholarships, um, I had it was a it was a second choice for me. But I was in, accepted into nursing school at Sacramento State and transferred
1: there together with Joe in 1971. And then, did you drop out of nursing school because of the relationship?
3: I dropped out of nursing school and continued again but when Joe appeared with a gun at my window in the middle of the night that terrorized me I was afraid to go back to the campus where he knew where I'd be all times he knew where my classrooms were uh, when I was in the hospital and I didn't want to give him the opportunity to find me again so I dropped out
1: temporarily and came back later well, I can only imagine how scary that must have been, especially now knowing what he ultimately became. Um, so, thank you for sharing that. Um, how about uh, Chris? Yeah,
4: so I'm Chris Padretti, and I was victim number ten. Um, see, yeah, I was it was December 18th, and I was 15 years old. And just a little bit about my story: um, my parents had gone to a holiday party and my sister was at work and i felt completely safe being at home um i had never heard of the east area rapist so i wasn't aware of the danger that was out there but um i had a friend over and she was called home to go make christmas cookies and so i started to play the piano and that is when he rounded the corner and began that um, night of terror
1: okay well, thanks for sharing that, Chris. I appreciate it. I do remember very distinctly um, the day or so after the arrest that you uh, you sent something to the DA's office. Maybe you can tell the listeners what that was, if you don't mind.
4: No, not at all. Um, so yeah, the, the day of, you know, it was very surreal. And it was during, I mean, yeah, the day that he was captured. And then the day, uh, during that day, I realized how, grateful I was that you know I had decided he was dead and put him out of my mind and there is this task force and there's all these dedicated officers looking for him and I I really was overcome with gratitude and so uh, we showed up at Emory's office and I had put together a um, I would like to call it a bouquet but it's probably the most massive bouquet. So it was uh, one rose for every year that he had um, been out there. And um, she, you brought, you allowed us to come in and I was able to present those to you. And so many, I couldn't even find a container big enough to hold all of those roses. And so at that point, it just really dawned on me like how massive and how many years this man was free and, and terrorizing his his victims so anyways uh that was a really special day for me and I'm very thankful that you uh, made time for us thank you
1: well it was a very special gift I will say that um Gay how about you
5: well my husband and I were um victims of the 31st attack in March of uh, 1978 we were living in Stockton and it was a Friday evening and we had a a lovely time going out to dinner and we went to see a John Travolta movie I think it was Saturday Night Fever or something like that and uh, we came home and you know we went to bed around 11 Um, o'clock and sometime after that when when we were sound asleep really deeply asleep 12 1 o'clock I'm not sure we were awakened by the shaking of our bed and a bright light in our eyes and a gun pointed at our faces.
1: I'm sure very scary, very, very scary. Um, okay, so let me let me ask you all this. Um, in April of 2018, and it was announced that the Eustera Rapist, the Golden State Killer had been arrested. And I just, I wanna ask you all uh, when you found out how, how did you feel, you know, at that moment, having waited so long um, and not knowing if anybody would actually ever get caught? So let me start with Carol. How, you know, obviously you've retired, right?
2: Right. Um, For 42 years, the last thing on my mind every night when I went to sleep were these victims and uh, who the East Area Rapist was. So when Sheriff Scott Jones called me during the day to tell me that they had identified the East Area Rapist, um, I was rather in shock. And of course, um, I said, you have to be kidding. And knowing that he would not kid over such a serious thing. And he said, in fact, uh, the man is in booking right uh, right now, and his name is Joseph of D'Angelo and so my first comment Uh, was thinking about the victims, which has always been, this case has always been about the victims. And I told him, you have to call as many people as you can first before they hear about it on the news. And he said, okay, start calling. Uh, And then it was shortly after that, I received a phone call. I think it was from you and you said, oh, wait, don't be in too big of a hurry because we're doing arrest warrants and we don't want the word to get out. And so I waited, uh, had made a couple of phone calls and I waited until the next morning uh, early uh, to make some of the phone calls Um, and it was such it it was a shock to me Um, but then my second thought came along was was joseph d'angelo someone in uh, the records that we had looked at as a suspect and dismissed and every investigator throughout the state had that same fear and we were very thankful to know that he had not come to our attention during those 42 years
1: Yeah. in one of the prior episodes, we talked about all the different lists that had been created over the years of many projects to try to identify. And that was the same question. You know, was he on any list? And in fact, he was never on a list. Yes. Um, So at least at least for the investigative purposes, um, there was no missing, quote, you know, piece here. He just had eluded capture for so long. Right, Carol?
2: Yes, yes, um, and I think the biggest fear uh, that we had uh, when he was working in Sacramento was that uh, he was going to kill a victim. And in 2001, when they uh, matched up the DNA with the homicides in Southern California, it was a horrible, horrible feeling thinking, what did we miss? Was there something we could have done to um, uh, pre- have prevented those cases from occurring? Um, I think we did everything that we could, and um, I've always felt at peace about that.
1: I agree with you.
5: Um,
1: Gay, how about you?
5: Well, I found out um, when one of my daughters called me and um, informed me that he's been caught. And I said, who? Because that was the farthest thing from my mind um, at that time. And she said, well, the East area rapist. And I was stunned and uh, I wasn't totally unaware of the case. I had worked with Paul Holes a number of years earlier, around 2012, he had investigated my case and that's when I first learned about the murders being associated. And, um, you know, he wasn't able to find any any significant um, clues in in my case down in, in Stockton. And so um, we, you know, went our separate ways around 2016, didn't communicate anymore. There was no reason to. And I I felt that roller coaster that law enforcement must have felt all those many times of thinking, finally we're gonna, we're going to solve this, we're going to find out and bring this person to justice. Um, and the disappointment that came when there was nothing, there was just nothing that he could that he could uh Could make a conclusion about and um, it was so disappointing and I know law enforcement had to feel that time and time again over all those those decades it was um, uh, then the chore of putting it away again after having brought it all up and I did that and then all of a sudden I get a phone call saying you know mom uh, this is on the news and that's how i found out and so it was very shocking to me
1: i would imagine it brought all those memories back to the forefront yet again
5: it did it yeah, did i
1: can imagine um chris how about you
5: i was
4: uh, at a, a conference in la and about six in the morning uh, my daughter called me or texted me and said i think he's been caught and I think she saw it on a Reddit board or something. I don't know. But anyways, I looked at it and I was like, what is she talking about? But I just put the phone back down, thought I'd catch up with her later. And then like, I don't know, a few minutes later, I sat up like, wait, what? Who's been caught? And shortly after that, Carol called me and, uh, and told me and confirmed. And yeah, it was really... It was bizarre. For me, it was like kind of waking up the demon because I had very successfully figured out he was dead. And so to hear that he was caught and alive, like spun me back so many decades. And I, I found myself in shock and I couldn't, um, there was no one with me, right. I was by myself. And so I couldn't, decide whether I should just go back to bed or take a shower or go to training. I mean, I was really that frozen, just didn't know what to do. And um, my husband called me and he was asking me questions and I kept nodding. He's like, Chris, I can't see you. So you need to talk. And he was about ready to get on a plane to come get me. And I was like, no, 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 I I can do this. So he, um, my boss was able to get me on a plane and he picked me up. Um, my concern was that did I know him was he someone my parents knew Um, I was scared to death that if I saw him um, and I did know him and I was by myself I didn't like know what was going to happen so uh, luckily we got uh, I flew back and got back just minutes before the press conference and I was completely relieved that I, I didn't know him. But I would say that 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 experience there was um, there, there eventually was some happiness, but there was a lot of fear and there was anger and there was uh, the shock. There was just so many feelings going on in my mm-hmm. body that um, I couldn't settle on one feeling. So it was a very, uh, a very surreal experience. Uh, morning. And uh, it took a while to, to be able to, to get that in order, which of what we just talked about is how I came to that, how grateful I am, because I really just had dismissed it. And if not for all the hard work you
1: guys had done, I'd still be in that place. Right. All right. Well, thanks for sharing that, Chris. Bonnie, how about you? I mean, I assume this was kind of a, a whirlwind for you.
3: Absolutely. I was preparing to leave Italy and returned home to to Sacramento when I received a phone call from my former husband. He asked me, what was the name of that guy you dated before we met? And I answered, you mean Joe D'Angelo? And he said, yeah, that's the one. He was just arrested as the East Area Rapist. The DA is trying to contact you. Can I give her your number in Italy? I was absolutely floored. Uh, not in a million years had I ever suspected that he might be the person that I had feared for years living in the east area of Sacramento, having a husband who was frequently gone on long business trips so that I was alone and right in the center of the areas where the rapes were occurring. It was almost impossible to comprehend that the man who had been terrorizing my community for years was someone that I'd known. It had always been Joe. Uh, before I arrived home from Italy two days later, the news that the rapist had cried, I hate you Bonnie was all over the media. Paul Holes explained in broadcast that they knew they would find out who Bonnie was when they found the right guy. And the photograph of our engagement announcement with my maiden name was featured everywhere. When I landed in San Francisco after 21 hours of flights, I turned on my cell phone to immediate calls from San Francisco television stations who had used the locator information on my telephone. At home, satellite trucks were lining up on my street. Reporters were milling around waiting for me. I was alerted by friends and was unable to return home until the reporters gave up. After interviewing my neighbors and trying to contact my adult children, I finally returned to find 143 phone messages and cards and letters from media requesting interviews, and I only replied to the one left in March by investigator Paul Holes. That conversation eventually led to a personal friendship and my introduction to some of Joe's other victims.
1: Wow. Oh, must have been quite a surreal day. And if I remember talking to you previously, you said that basically your heart you know, almost came out of your chest when you found out this information. Well, I couldn't, I really am grateful that I was contacted in advance.
3: I would have walked into the situation without any warning from Italy, having no idea what was waiting for me. And and having no idea that he had ever used my name, or, or that there was any connection, um, other than the fact that we had once known each other 48 years beforehand. Right.
1: So, how? Let me ask you this: um, How did you guys all meet? I mean, obviously, you all know each other well now. I mean, Carol, obviously, you were an investigator, but but you know, kind of since the time of the arrest. Um, Tell us how you all kind of came together in this kind of survivor network, as I'll say. So how about how about Gay? I'll start with you.
5: Well, I uh, I had never met any of the victims um, and I hadn't attended any of the um, the hearings during the first year after the the arrest. But I had been participating in the HBO series called I'll Be Gone in the Dark and Uh, They were going to hold a sort of wrap up barbecue at one of the victims homes, and it turned out to be Chris's Chris's home. And so uh, that spring of 2019 I called her, and we had, we just talked for two hours, and I said I just, you know, I thought before I showed up on your doorstep I would give you a call. And uh, she, you know, it was just amazing to speak with someone else who totally got it. And that was the first time that had ever happened in my life. It was an amazing experience. Um, so my husband and I uh, joined um, the rest of the victims for the uh, the afternoon at her house. And it was the uh, one-year anniversary, I believe, of the arrest. And It was stunning for me to look around and be introduced to so many other victims who knew exactly what we had gone through. And I knew exactly what they had experienced. Of course, not exactly, but uh, throughout the rest of my life, there was never anyone I could speak with that had a, a real view of what we might have experienced, and so it was powerful. And I really thank Chris for that. And we've been we've been friends ever since. I think I met Carol that day as well, but I didn't meet Bonnie um, until later. I think I met her during the the uh, sentencing and the victim impact statements is is when I met her.
1: Right. Well, thanks for that. How about uh, Chris? How about you?
4: Well, the first time uh, that we were all together was at the arraignment and there was a big meeting, uh, blew my mind. This meeting was, I, I think it was a conference room that you guys have at the district attorney's office and the room was packed. and There were so many people and I remember just looking around at all these people that Jodi Angelo negatively affected and Basically ruined their life for some time. So uh, from there, we all got into these vans and went to the uh, to the jail. And gosh, it was just like a scene out of the movie for me. I don't know. There was all sorts of press and whatnot. But once we got into the actual room, the courtroom, um, we ended up sitting next to each other. <clears throat> Some of us who didn't even know each other were holding hands and, and there was an instant bond. And um, it was very overwhelming, but just to see, you know, the amount of people there, um, I just, I couldn't, I, I knew immediately I needed to meet each and every one of these women and their families because like Gay said, we get it, we know. And um, so I think in uh, August, of that same year, 2018, I did a, invited everybody to my home for like a. Let's get to know each other without the press around, and uh, and we connected. And I would look around and it'd be like, these women, they're, they're just beautiful and they're they're successful and they are kind. And many of us, we would talk like, Gay said, like hours on the phone nobody else wants to talk that many details that, you know, but we understood and we could do that. And the group continued to grow. I think the first time we had maybe 10 people and by the last meeting before, um, the plea bargain, um, there probably was maybe like 30 there. So I don't know. They're just, it's kind of like you meet as an acquaintance and then a few hours later, you're sort of family. It's a really fast track to a trusting bond that sometimes friends need to work out forever. But we kind of went in at that point and then got to know each other backwards.
1: <laughs> so sounds so, like it became an incredible support network for all of you. Absolutely.
4: Absolutely. We would all check in together. Um, and, you know, we'd go to Carol's house or my house afterwards. Uh, Bonnie, just like um, Gay, we didn't meet until I think officially until the sentencing. Um, but again, it was a quick meet. It was it was a quick bond. You know, they're just... I mean, if there was anything magical out of this whole experience, it is this.
1: Right. Right. Well, that says a lot. Uh, Carol, how about you?
2: Well, um, th- after the arraignment, um, I read somewhere on Facebook, I think it was from uh, Debbie Domingo. And what was interesting is that all of the cases in Sacramento were now starting to tie into all of the homicide cases and people from out of town. And I think I read from Debbie Domingo uh, coming to town as, hey, we're going to be um, at the arraignment. And is there a restaurant close by uh, where we can all meet and talk afterwards? And I immediately said, uh-uh, you, you cannot meet someplace in public. I'm only five miles from from the courthouse uh, just right off i-5 let's meet at my house and so i didn't attend the first two or three hearings um, i was here and i had food prepared and tables all set up and just allowed them to come in and um, just debrief and be away from the um, public eye Back when these rapes started, uh, rape crisis centers were just starting, and we didn't really have the facilities uh, that the current departments have as far as dealing with the victims. And so it was um, just very rewarding to be able to do something for victims after all of these years, uh, to have them come together and be able to share and and have it in private. And then what came out of that are are the friendships. And um, I just was taken back by, Every one of them, allowing me to come back into their lives and uh, the things that we share in common, uh, gardening, decorating, uh, entertaining, um, just dogs, <laughs> a lot of different things. Uh, and the bond, um, I remember I had never met Phyllis Sitka. She was the first victim. And I met her through Chris uh, when they were doing a story. A lady from Denmark was writing a book and they came to our house and, and got to know her. And through that, um, actually, uh, Phyllis ended up uh, passing Away and Chris and I were both with her during those last days, so the bond was really, really strong. Um, the um, it's just been amazing, uh, to uh, look at each one of these women and all of that they have accomplished and the strength uh, that they have shown. Um, and uh, for me, it's just been an amazing end uh, to 42 years of when did uh, Carol, when did you retire? 2001, and then I went to work uh, for the State Board of Prison Terms until 2005. So I've been totally retired retired since 2005.
1: Well, I just think it speaks volumes to your character that you have maintained your you know your public service for so long and um, always put the Prison. business first. In, in front. It's no no doubt about that. Um, one just comment, Carol, when you talk about Phyllis Zitka and the bond that was created, I think there's no. There was no greater showing of that bond than at the time of the sentencing uh, in the plea of Joseph D'Angelo when everybody stood up in her honor since she could not be there. It was a moment uh, I would imagine none of us will ever forget.
2: Now, I think when um, when we look at the victims, it wasn't just the victims. It was the whole families that were involved. And when we had one of the first meetings at our house following the hearings, uh, the mother and daughter, a uh, sister of one of the victims who had passed away were here because it was very important for them to represent uh, their daughter uh, and, and to also be part of this. So it was wide ranging in uh, everybody that was affected by these crimes.
1: No doubt about that. Um, Bonnie, let me, let me kind of put two- part question here. I mean, first of all, is like how did you how did you get to know all these amazing people? And then the other part of that is I remember that you had asked to be able to give a victim impact statement at the time of the sentencing and because you were not a quote direct victim, you weren't able to. So maybe you can kind of share your thoughts if you if you had that opportunity, what would you have said? Well, let
3: me say first, after Joe's arrest and before the plea hearing, um, I, Paul Holes and I met several times and I answered many questions about Joe, our former relationship. And I gave him many small details that he couldn't have gathered from anyone who hadn't known Joe back in that time. I wasn't allowed to attend the plea hearing, but I had shown Paul the location at CSUS. And so after the plea hearing, he came over to my house, which is quite nearby and invited me to go with him to Carol Daly's house where some of the victims were meeting after the plea hearing. I stopped in my tracks. (laughs) I was very uncomfortable to go and I insisted that he make a phone call and find out if I was welcome there. Um, I had been portrayed in the press as a woman who was responsible for Joe's rage and revenge crimes against women and I didn't know how I would be received. So Paul called Carol and Carol welcomed me. So that's where I met the sister survivors. That's where I began their relationships with them. And uh, it was a great relief to me that no one, uh, none of the sister survivors believed that I was responsible for enraging him, believed that I had any culpability for any of the things that he had done. And uh, I, so those friendships began that day and uh, later expanded to many more women through meetings at Chris's house. And uh, I'm, I'm very grateful to have been included in the group, although
1: I'm not one of Joe's direct victims. All right, no question about that. So what, what do you think you would have said if you were allowed to get up and, and give an impact statement?
3: Um, actually, um, what I had prepared to say was that I was never raped by Jodi Angelo, nor were any members of my family murdered or directly harmed by him. And I don't consider myself in the same category as all of those whom he raped and tried to humiliate or those who've lost loved ones that he heartlessly murdered. Those survivors are extraordinary people rising above their darkest days to see Joe taken away for the remainder of his life behind bars. I'm a collateral victim smeared by association, stripped of her privacy and pursued for interviews and photographs. Using my name during the commission of a crime did not give him the opportunity to shift blame on anyone else. He owns his choices and his actions. Calling out my name may have caused me great consequences, but it didn't in any way lessen his responsibility for what he has done. False claims that our relationship fueled his rage and revenge crimes are misguided and don't rest the blame directly on Joe, the only person who Mm -hmm. deserves the full weight of the consequences of his actions. At the time of Joe's arrest, my name was not protected like the names of his victims who identified Jane Doe's unless they chose to be named publicly. Instead, my maiden and married names were national news and international headlines, with a photograph taken from my Facebook profile published beside Joe's booking photo, linking me to him with articles identifying me as the Bonnie who enraged him. I had not heard of I Hate you, Bonnie and had no idea that law enforcement had been trying to find me for years. Investigator Paul Holes explained in broadcast that they knew they would find out who Bonnie was when they found the right guy. And our engagement announcement with my photo and name was featured everywhere, turning loose the media and armchair detectives to try to find me. My cell and fixed phones never stopped ringing. My home was surrounded by satellite trucks and reporters. And my adult children were pursued along with my siblings and my neighbors. Nothing could have pointed out how fragile is our privacy, as well as having been identified as Joe's former fiancé, with my home address and personal phone numbers published on websites, and strangers speculating about who I was, how I'd been involved, how I'd enraged Joe and released him on the public. My travel photo blog of 11 years was copied and posted as an ebook on Amazon with a new title so that was quickly the top response to searches for the Golden State Killer. I had to take down my blog permanently, the place where I'd shared my travels and photographs with friends and followers for more than a decade. I read in posts that I had left Joe to marry a millionaire and another article pointed out that I'd been Joe's first wife, when the truth was I left Joe because he became abusive of a much younger woman who finally wised up and had enough of being manipulated. Sitting down to do a Google search of my name quickly lost its charm. So much was untrue and taken from a few facts to an incorrect conclusion. Even if I'd given up looking at all that was written about me, some of my friends had not and continued forwarding to me every reference that they thought I hadn't yet seen. And it just never stopped. So much about Joe was revealed to me as his case unfolded. I had fully cooperated with the DA's investigators beginning just a day after I arrived home from Italy. In the most intimate of details, I responded to every question asked of me with all that I could remember after 48 years. I could see when my replies got a stunned response, adding new information to the investigation I soon learned how many of what I had believed were facts about Joe's life and military service had been lies to me. And I had never suspected through many sources. I found out that Joe had been involved in burglaries since his teens and realized that my engagement ring was probably stolen property taken from one of those break-ins. I watched him push beyond the boundaries of the rules for the rest of us poaching fish and game, trespassing and scoffing at traffic laws. But I was often caught in a remote location right beside him with no idea that his plan was to break the law. Finally, I opted out and left the relationship still quite unaware of his capabilities. When Joe tried to force me to marry him, bringing a gun to my home and pointing it at me just inches from my face, I was terrified. Now, in hindsight, I know that he was capable of using that gun, and my sleeping family in the same farmhouse, a place too remote to have had any gunshots heard by neighbors, were all at extreme risk of his anger. I regret what must have been my father's bargain not to report him, since his future law enforcement career would have been ended that night by appearing with a gun to kidnap me. Maybe he would not have had the cover of being a sworn police officer during the investigation of the East Area Rapist crimes and never received the training that enhanced his burglary skills. My final regret is that I missed a call from investigator Paul Holtz more than a month before Joe was identified and arrested as the Golden State Killer. Just before his retirement, he left a message on my home phone asking me to call but I was in Italy and did not receive the message until after Joe's arrest. In conversations with Paul, given the information that Joe had once tried to kidnap me at gunpoint to force me to marry him, Paul would have moved him from being one of the suspects whose DNA might be a match to becoming the primary suspect. Had he called my cell number, I could have given him information that might have moved the case forward and pointed investigators to Joe. Unfortunately, the circumstances didn't give me the opportunity to find the right person sooner. Just a final thought for Joe. We're nearly the the same age and I have now celebrated my 70th birthday. I have grandchildren crawling on my lap, sharing sloppy kisses and hugs and lavishing their Nona with love. I will watch them grow hear their laughter, and love them right back. Joe, in contrast, will be in a cell wasting away the last of his days, and his family carries the shame of being related to a notorious serial rapist and murderer. Joe carries the face of a haggard old man who has lived decades hiding out from justice, waiting for the knock on the door, signaling the time to pay the price for his crimes. Maybe he will have visitors in prison and maybe his family never wants to see him again. No grandchildren in his arms, no respect from the people around him, no prospects that it will ever be better. I hold my head up as do the other survivors who've become my friends, while he could not keep his eyes open and his mouth closed as he was fed answers in court by his attorneys. I'm the bookends to his story. I was his love before he was known as the East Area Rapist and the Golden State Killer. And now, regaining control over the media frenzy and loss of privacy that his arrest has caused for me now that he has been found and held accountable for his crimes. Goodbye, Joe. For 48 years, I never gave him a thought and I've returned to the same place he goes back to being insignificant forgotten and gone in my life
0: my name is um, jane carson
2: sandler and d'angelo i want you to look at me i want you to look at me d'angelo yes evil one i turned my pain into power and my mess into a message by facilitating groups of women that had been sexually assaulted and volunteering at our rape crisis center. All very worthwhile activities. Well, you know, a quarter of me being a Christian, I wanna say to you, may God have mercy on your soul. But then there's another three quarters of me that just wanna tell you, buddy, to rot in hell.
1: You know one of the things that i've often said is that until people understand that crime has consequences they don't understand what it means to be a victim of a crime and I, I think there's no doubt in listening to you and everybody else that you were a victim of joseph d'angelo but but like all these other incredible people you're also a survivor as well so thank you for sharing that and i'm sorry that it wasn't at the time of the sentencing but hopefully the listeners can understand what you went through as well. Um, so let me let me kind of move into the next phase, and um, really what I, I hope is inspirational to everybody is, you know, this extraordinary coming together of victims and survivors to help other people um, that have also been the victims of, of of violence or sexual violence. So you know, let me just kind of ask this question: Is how were you all able to move from tragedy, really? this horrific circumstances to a positive path to helping other people. Um, And I'll start Chris, maybe with you. I,
4: for so many years, uh, again, like I, I was suffering with PTSD. I didn't even know what that was. Um, a whole, you know, decades, decades of my life gone that I can't reclaim. And, As we went through this process, the kindness of law enforcement, of our prosecutor, of the other survivors, of uh, people I didn't even know who would reach out, it showed me that our world, we do have kindness in it. And I feel to this day very strongly that victims of assault, mostly sexual assault, Uh, the blame because of our culture has been put back on them and we live with that and we live in isolation and we begin to believe the shame that's put upon us. And, you know, as I was going through this, I thought, gosh, how many women are out there that have experienced sexual assault and they're not getting the support that I'm getting. So I, uh, after getting therapy, um, which was another huge, huge um, element of getting over this, I decided to form a Facebook group. And I was like, you know, how is anyone even going to find me? Because like, we can't put commercials out there, right? Like you just have to hope. And um, so I started the group. It was called, it's called um, Sexual, uh, Sexual Assault Survivors. It's time to tell your story. And I would get one and I'd get two and then it just has grown so now we're about 650 somewhere in there and lo and behold these women uh, my age and older they're still carrying that shame and they've had nowhere to put it and um and so started this group and it's we oh my gosh fantastic friendships met people that don't even um, live in California. People have flown in. It's in uh, four different countries. Well, it's actually in 11 different countries, but four of them primarily. And we all have the same thing in common. It doesn't matter where we live. We all carry this shame that is not ours. And once you're able to um, talk about it and feel safe, you actually feel free. You feel like, okay, I here's an a new starting point and i would say every week there's somebody that says i've been watching this for a long time and i finally feel safe enough to share what has happened to me and they're just the same gratitude i have they're feeling because it's it's like kind of getting putting that that prison door that we put ourselves into so uh that is inspiring to me. That is how I have gotten through this. And I, it is so inspiring to me that I'm not going to stop. I, whatever I can do to help others find their voice. Um, that's what I'm going to do for the rest of my years, because it's life-changing and it's just really super important. And I do want to say um, people in our group, the, uh, uh, East area rapist, uh, victims many of them are helping in that group gay is a moderator and so we've all kind of not all of us but a good amount of us have come together even in this endeavor to pay it forward so um, that that's another big thing about our group that this wasn't just oh nice to meet you we have stayed together and, and we are all in it to support others um and as well we also have um we did it in the summer before the um uh, COVID's variant came about, but we decided to extend it to, um, to meet in person. So everybody had to be vaccinated. They had to show proof of vaccination, but we did it, I think three times and we'd have like 35 um, survivors come. And that's where we really got to know Bonnie much more um, because she came and gave a very powerful message. Um, Emory, you came and spoke and, uh, We had a detective from the police department come. Just um, Carol Daly spoke about how it was for her being an investigator and seeing these women, you know, who have been brutally raped and then go home and try to have a normal family life and be a wife and, and a mom. So, you know, it just really opened up so many more levels. And we're all still in contact. We've had to suspend them till next year. We, our health is important but um, we would have brunch and uh, I think it was said very well by one of our gals um, who's out of Chicago and she said you know we came in as strangers and we left his family so uh, amazing yeah yeah we're going to continue and it's the strength of each other that will encourage the next one to speak up
5: yep very powerful very powerful okay how about you well, the you know, having come to know the group of um, Golden State Killer survivors um, and conversations with Chris, there was a real epiphany that happened for me in that I had been stuck in my processing of what had happened to me for decades, and I I never healed, and I couldn't talk about it with anyone really um, because. My experience was that most people, even close friends, would find it so disturbing that um, I risked them distancing themselves from me because it was so disturbing um, that, you know, they they sort of um, <clears throat> made that shame feel real that by distancing themselves. And, you know, if you can't talk about something, then it must be shameful. So you go through all these, these decades carrying this baggage that you can't put down. So when I was able to put it down, when I felt for the first time I put it down was when I met the other survivors and they understood and I understood them and I could, I could see their beauty and I could see their success and their perseverance and their, um, desire to make the most of their lives. And which is all the same things I had been doing all these decades, but I, I did it in isolation. And so then I started to, to feel some real healing begin. And I also sought out uh, trauma therapy and um, I see the, the Facebook group and the survivor meetings as something that really enhances the healing process because when you're able to speak in a safe situation about what's happened to you your mind is then able to process it all much more efficiently and over time um the last 3 years i i feel i've become fairly desensitized to what you know, what I was carrying around for so long that I would think of every single day, and I don't have to think about it anymore. I know that my perpetrator is put away. I know that um, the responsibility was entirely on him. Um, I understand that if it is still too disturbing for someone in my life to accept that this happened to me or that I must be somehow culpable because I was raped, which comes straight out of the 70s uh, cultural attitude, right. um, I, uh, I move on. And I know that there are plenty of other people uh, like me out there who understand. And um, I wanna be with those people and right. I know that's where my healing is. And I think that they also heal when they're able to speak with someone like me or with, with Chris. No so doubt about that. It, it It's a win-win situation all the way around. And it's an aspect that I think a lot of trauma therapists have never even heard of before um, of, of the true benefits of having a survivor group Um, that is no longer a series of Jane Does, but real people who can attest to the fact that you're, you know, you are going to find a healing path. You you can go out and find help even 40 years later. Um, There are breakthroughs in the therapies that are available today that were not available 40 years ago. And there are a lot of women who either didn't report or Uh, their, their cases have remained, um, unresolved and they just carry that burden and they don't realize that it's not too late. You can, you can go out and get on that healing path.
1: Excellent. Excellent message. Um, Bonnie, how about you? I
3: was not one of the sister survivors of Joe. However, I experienced a rape myself in Florence, Italy in 2005. I had extensive therapy afterward, uh, taken under protest, but I realized how far forward I came having addressed the issues and how much self-blame I had carried. um, And also the shame of it happening to me and feeling like, I couldn't discuss it even with some of my closest friends. I know my husband was very reluctant to ask questions, to hear any details, he just didn't wanna know. So I was able to join Chris's Sexual Assault Survivors uh, Facebook page because of a different experience that gave me the empathy to understand what other people had gone through are going through. I often see in the posts of people on the site, I see parallels with what happened to me with feelings that I had, that I have since learned to address, I have, I've changed my attitude, I've changed what the belief that I had any contribution to what happened to me. And To be a part of that network and to be able to be a resource to women who are struggling with a recent assault or with what they have carried years from assault long ago um, has been very beneficial to me in both realizing what I am still carrying and have carried and am trying to put down and seeing that it's the same for so many women and maybe my experience a few comments for me some love and support uh, even just over a Facebook uh, post can be very beneficial it's been been I came forward and told my story on the site and received so much support afterwards and gradually I'm getting to the place where I am Bulletproof as far as uh, actually it's it's my self-shaming that I have been able to let go in, in seeing and talking to other survivors and being a part of this network. And I'm very grateful for the opportunity and try to be present when I see posts where I think I have something to add to step in and give a little support and perspective from my point of view. So thank you, Chris. Thank you for including me. And uh, I'm, I'm, it's not a club anyone wants to be a member of, but right. we have absolutely made the best of it in supporting
2: each other.
1: Yeah, that's, that's obvious to, to all of us here, just listening to all three of you.
2: Carol, how about you? Well, looking back um, at the progress that has been made in addressing victimization over the years, um, I look back at like what it was in the 70s and the little resources that we have. And throughout this, when Chris was trying to decide what she was going to do to help other victims, um, I went to the house and we talked and I said, well, here's what's already being done. And I didn't have the same vision uh, that I, I wasn't really that much help. I was supportive, but not that much help. But as a result of uh, talking with Chris, uh, we went to the Elk Grove Police Department and we met with the uh, sexual assault investigator and the uh, WEAVE representative that they had there. And uh, I was blown away. Uh, I had been out of law enforcement circles you know, for years, and I was actually blown away to see what is available for victims now when they report a crime, how, how the interviews are done, uh, the help that is given to them by laws that have been changed. And um, I think with what is available and with what Chris and others are doing, Uh, It's a whole different um, venue right now for what victims are going through than what it was uh, back in those days. Uh, And it makes me very happy to know that there are resources for people to help. Um, But it also makes me very happy to know that those who have been victims are willing to reach out and help help others heal.
1: You know, one of the things that I remember, um, again, before the arrest was when we pulled all the old uh, footage from TV and all that, you know, back when these crimes were happening, Carol, you probably remember this. It almost became a woman's rights movement. Yes. Uh, particularly in Sacramento, because the laws on rape were so pathetic, quite frankly, that it wasn't even a prison crime. You could get probation for a forcible sexual assault. And, you know, you know, we've come a long way on the laws. Um, yes. And I'd also like us to believe that we've come a long way on resources. But we haven't necessarily come a long way in stopping sexual violence. Yes, and we know the numbers are extraordinarily high, but as I listen to all of you, what I am really amazed by is that uh, really this message of hope, which is you all have come together out of a terrible, terrible circumstance, and have provided countless people with an opportunity to start healing from from their own experiences, and so. I just, I can't thank you all enough, um, but I want to just kind of end this with like kind of your final thoughts. Like, you know, how do you, you know, having gone through this horrific experience and now you're coming out the other side, I'd like to believe, um, you know, what's your final thoughts and maybe I'll start with uh, how about gay?
5: Um, I, I guess my final thought is that uh, our culture needs to understand that rape is not about sex. And I still think there is that that bias out there. Um, It's a violent near-death experience. And it needs to stop. We need to put effort forth to see it as a crime in jurisdictions that needs to be pursued and solved. And consequences need to be meted out. The victims should not just be living in silence, and their cases should not be just sitting cold, going cold. Um, The other other thing that I know for sure now is that um, we need to talk about it more. We need to say the word rape. We need to call it what it is and not feel so so sensitive about it. It's a crime. That being said, there are resources to help victims heal. And there are um, women out there who have experienced similar attacks who can help. And there are sites like like Chris's uh, site, um, Sexual Assault Survivors, It's Time to Tell Your Story, that will help you put your burden down. And uh, that's very important.
1: Thanks for sharing that. appreciate that. How about, um, Chris, how about you? Final thoughts? Uh,
4: my final thought, actually my final, my hope is that listeners, um, can reclaim their life. You don't need to allow this culture that we live in to create the shame. That's not yours. What happened was done to you, not because of you. And I just, the beginning of healing is to find someone or somewhere that you feel safe to talk about it. Um, and, you know, my, my final sentence here is, you know, the only person responsible for rape is
1: the rapist. Don't take it. It's not yours. No question about that. That's an excellent point to make. We shall have to always remember that. Um, Bonnie, how about you?
3: Well, I have to say I've come to this group through a long and torturous uh, history and the the difficulty for me in accepting that I'm accepted that I am not that I carry none of the shame of what Joe did to other people. I had nothing to do with that. But in meeting all of these women, strong, wonderful women and Carol and you to be able to be into in a place where I have experienced a great deal of healing, where I can offer perspective and advice and support to other women who've been through the same kind of sexual assault and just use the word rape as I have, uh, unfortunately, had the opportunity to experience, uh, to be in a position where I can see a way where I can be of help and be and help extend kindness to people who are suffering from the miseries after a sexual assault. Um, I'm very grateful that this whole Joe D'Angelo case has brought me to this place where I can contribute and help other women who've had similar experiences.
1: Excellent, well, thank you very much for that. And Carol, how about you?
2: Well, thinking about everything that has been done over the years to um, further educate people and uh, change laws. um, I think the push now should be uh, for agencies throughout the whole United States, each state, to have laws that are uniform in how they deal with these crimes and what the prosecution is and um, what the penalty is going to be. So I think standardization across the whole U.S. and some states have stepped forward, and um, we just hope that others will be as progressive. Yeah,
1: no question about that. I, You know, I'm just going to wrap this up by First of all, saying thank you to all of you, Gay Hardwick, Chris Padretti, Bonnie Olson, and uh, Carol Daly. You are what I would call warriors for justice. And um, you are very much part of this team that has not just survived, but now you're thriving and helping others. And um, it's incredibly inspirational. I mean, I've been in this business almost 32 years now. Carol, you've been in it, you were in it for a long time. You, much, still are in it. Um, this is an inspiration that I hope the listeners and everybody that joins in can understand uh, the impact that you're having on other people's lives. There's no question about that. So I just thank all of you uh, for joining me today. Uh, for the listeners out there, if you want to listen to other podcasts, I'd ask you just to sign up and go to InsideCrimeFiles.com and join our list and continue to listen to um, to these inside stories of what happens and the consequences of crime but also the inspirational stories that come out of them. So thank you all for joining me today.
5: Thanks a lot.
1: Thank you. Thank you. I am Amory Schubert and this is Inside the Crime Files.